You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. Good morning or good afternoon. This is Morag Barrett and with me is Dr. Linda Sharkey. We're excited that you've joined us again for the Future Proof Workplace radio show. We have a fabulous guest joining us this week, but before we get into introductions, Linda, how have you been? Well, really good, Morag. I'm totally jet lagged. I just got back from being in Germany and Austria and and, uh, had some really interesting discussions and talks with some uh, universities over there and some folks and uh, everybody's buzzing about artificial intelligence and how we've got to change our learning models around the world. And I think that's really true. Well, it's going to be interesting that links so well into our content today. But ironically, I was with the state of Tennessee last week uh, talking about the future-proof workplace and used the video from Boston Dynamics. I don't know if you've seen it, of uh, their robot, Atlas, yeah. uh, doing a backflip of all things. So as you talk about artificial intelligence, robotics, that digital transformation that is in our faces, ubiquitous, pernicious impacting every aspect of our lives. And yet, as you and I know, it's the people, um, the people revolution that we also need to be paying attention to in order to successfully navigate the 21st century. And, you know, Morag, that seems to be resonating more and more with people. I mean, we were really onto something when we, you know, when we uh, looked at those factors for our book. There's no question it really resonates. And there's there's another video out there of uh, people training the robot. Um, I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, In fact, I'm not sure if it's out in the public domain. It was at the uh, 21 Jobs of the Future conference that I was speaking at uh, just before I left for Europe. And they, you know, a person is standing right next to the robot and does this dance and do these arm movements, teaching the robot how to do this. It's fascinating. (laughs) Well, I'm going to link us into our guest this week because in the in the way that t- we're teaching robots to do things, one of the questions I saw in a recent article is that in the age of robotics, are we teaching our children to become obsolete? Yeah. And so that leads me into introducing our guest this week. So in the Future Proof radio show, as you know, our goal is to share insights and information on trending topics impacting the world of work and careers in the 21st century. And to do that, we're inviting experts and thought leaders to be our guest. And after listening to our conversation, we want you to be able to walk away having learned something new and equipped to future proof both your organization and career. So this week, I'm really excited to have my friend and colleague, Rose Else Mitchell, with us. And she is the Chief Learning Officer at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And they are a global organization who are leading edge when it comes to uh, using technology and uh, in the education space. And so Rose is going to be talking to us today about the future of education in the 21st century, how digital innovation is impacting the classroom environment, the power of learning science, and more importantly, getting beyond the trends to using technology to truly enhance the learning experience 
experience. So, Rose, welcome to the Future Proof Workplace Radio Show. Welcome. Very, very happy to be here, and uh, nice to meet you, Linda. It's an incredibly important topic and uh, highly relevant to both, uh, you know, the students we serve, but also um, the adults, yeah. uh, teachers as learners. So. Happy to be here. Thanks. Well, looking forward to the conversation. So I didn't go a lot into your bio and your your background. There is no doubt you are passionate about the industry of education. So for the benefit of our listeners, can you start off by giving us a little bit of background on you and then maybe segue into giving us a bit of background on HMH and its history and reach within the education space? Absolutely. Uh, I actually began as a classroom teacher, began my career uh, straight out of college, and uh, they were five of the most satisfying um, years of my career. Uh, But I was very young, and I got a job as a teacher on a Friday, and I was in front of students on a Monday. And uh, there's nothing more, um, nothing more frightening (laughs) and, uh, and, uh, called hands-on learning as, as, as that. Um, I was very lucky to have a, a wonderful mentor and was able to pursue uh, a master's degree at the same time, which gave me this, this great experience of being both a teacher and uh, a student. Uh, I'm really thinking about different kinds of pedagogy and, and learning and also the, uh, the gap very much between uh, what we see as K-12 learning and, and higher ed. Uh, so I've uh, I've spent my time primarily as a, as a product developer in education, um, developing blended learning. Uh, solutions, so solutions that allow students to uh, obviously learn online or, you know, with a, a choice of place um, and pace uh, and uh, and often of content, uh, but also to be able to have the social interaction that's so important. You know, learning is necessarily a social activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so blended learning, I think, is really where... Um, it's an ideal, particularly in, you know, K-8 environments when kids are littler, uh, they have that opportunity to grow socially and and uh, also to take advantage of some of the, the, the great cutting edge things that we were talking about earlier. So um, I've also, also had experience leading a professional learning uh, service business and a technical services business and most recently have uh, come into this role as chief learning officer, which is not an HR role. In many places, this is an HR role focused on the internal learning in a company. Um, And certainly there is a lot of internal enablement that we're doing at HMH or Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Uh, But I'm really focused on what does it mean to deliver learning outcomes uh, to K-12 students and uh, and as I mentioned earlier, to support the role of of teacher as learner uh, and to think about that workforce and how they really need to um, be quote-unquote future-proofed. So it's interesting because, as you say, and I think the research um, I was reading somewhere, the World Economic Forum uh, predicted that 65% of students entering elementary school today are going to graduate their education career into roles that don't even exist today. Yes. So help us understand in terms of HMH, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, where do they fit into the education space in terms of their history, their reach? What's their focus? And then we can talk more about how do we bridge this gap? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, you've got to go back to um, some some first principles. I think when you when you talk about this, especially especially when you talk about elementary students, um, and it really opens up the question, which is what is school for? Uh, and you know, in a high accountability situation where you have 
um, an overfocus on tests and test scores, uh, we lose the focus of, you know, the role of school um, as developing students, not just for the economy in a utilitarian way, but as active participatory citizens in the culture. So there's so much that can be done in school that is um, is. It's actually, you know, the kinds of things that you actually did in the 19th century, mm-hmm. uh, where you would talk about um, the role of of, uh, of social emotional learning, of uh, how to work together, uh, of, you know, what is often called project-based learning in schools. So there's really a lot of things that can be done that equip students for a future, even a future of unknowns. Um because I think school has to be more about uh, just a step along a sort of factory pipeline into a career or a job. And I think in a way it's pushing school districts and teachers to think about what it, what is the value of what they're bringing. And, and certainly as a provider of educational materials, um, uh, digital solutions and services, it's pushing us to think about how do we incorporate those kinds of practices into the classroom? How do we help teachers move to not just prepping kids for tests or covering Mm -hmm. standards and academic standards, but look at some of these things, some of them called, you know, things like uh, executive function. Um, They're the kinds of skills that allow us to pay attention. Um, Thinking about some of the research that comes from Angela Duckworth and Dr. Carol Dweck at at Stanford around um, a a growth mindset Mindset. where you start off believing that you can do something and you, you really think about your brain changing as you learn to do that and how that can actually change change your outcome, whether that's playing the piano or or uh, especially something like doing math. So those kinds of skills and c- capabilities are the things that we look to try and add to um, the teaching repertoire, along with the stuff that we always talk about when we talk about the future, a future-proof school or a future-proof classroom, which is being having digital facility uh, and knowing when to use devices, when to use certain kinds of digital tools and when not. Sometimes that's not the right uh, that's not the right tool in the right place. So um, really helping students be critical about the tools that they use and the experiences that they have, as well as be makers, is certainly a focus of the kind of digital literacy, di- digital literacy um, and digital tool sets. I mean, just a, a great example of something we did uh, recently is we had a partnership with Google uh, and uh, Google Expeditions, and we produced uh, for our social studies, our world languages, and our sciences programs, uh, f- virtual field trips to help students experience and understand mm-hmm. the world outside their classroom as part of their curriculum. And, um, you know, that's a meaningful use when tied to learning outcomes. That's a meaningful use of technology. It's not just for its own sake. Um, and then obviously there's the role of the role of technology in terms of its use in data. And I'm sure we're going to talk more about that. I'm sure yeah. we are. Linda, I'm sure you've got a question. Uh, well, you know, actually, when you started out, it made me think that, that, you know, at this 21 Jobs of the Future, which was a really interesting conference, and, uh, you know, we were talking about some research that Cognizant had done, and much of the discussion was around schools, as you are talking about, and how we, and I'd really love your insight. You kind of, you touched on it, uh, Rose, but we're not really doing anything according to this heated debate we all had, to change the way we're teaching teachers and that there really has to be a fundamental rethink in how teachers are developed and trained and so that they learn to be more 
facilitators and more mentors than than what you were talking about the factory process of the of the 20th century what what do you have a, a, a thought or an insight into that of how you think the whole training of of of, of people that are educating others needs to really shift yeah this is a real real passion of mine Linda. i uh I, when I first became a teacher, I I, it, I marveled at uh, having friends in in Europe and and in Japan, um, particularly that you know the role of teaching in the culture and the role of the teacher, uh, and uh, how it's changed um, in some ways uh, and how it hasn't changed. So I do think there is um, there is some movement to this. Um, but I think a lot of it has to, as it does in the workplace, has to also come from teachers themselves. A lot of the language that we talk about is like, what are we going to do to teachers to make it better? And in some places, there are certainly companies which think, well, teachers are the problem. They're just doing this thing in the same way they've always done it. So, you know, let's replace them with technology. So I think number one is, I think we have to reassure teachers who I think do the hardest job in the world. Yes. Um, and it really is, I call it emotional work, right? You're, you're yes. faced with children and it, more and more in this country who come from very complex demographic and social cultural backgrounds. Um, you know, more children are in poverty now than ever. Um, so they're faced with this, this 30, 25 kids who are all at different kinds of reading levels, different kinds of achievement levels, some of whom have no idea about what kind of job um, they could do today, even if the, you know, the, the world wasn't shifting as fast as we know it is. Um, and they're supposed to teach them. Um, and it's, they've got so much compliance around what they do. So I think one of the first things we have to do is remove some of that and give them a little bit more autonomy. And I think we see in high performing countries and work that again, the OECD and McKinsey have done that, you know, teachers planning and collaborating together is one of the key ways that teachers drive their own success. Um, it's ironically an extremely lonely um, an isolating job. It sounds odd because there's going to a classroom, there's noises, kids everywhere. But the, you think about our work and what we all do um, as adults. We're collaborating, we're in meetings, we're traveling to places. Um, they're in this one room very often um, with this one set of kids, particularly in elementary. So I think we have to we have to pull away from some of the the those compliance aspects and give them more room to plan and to collaborate together, to solve problems together. Um, in every survey that goes out there, teachers will say they trust other teachers to provide suggestions of leads, of strategies, of materials, of websites to use. So we need to enhance them as a community and provide that opportunity. The second thing, which wouldn't be surprising to either of you as consultants that work in, um, uh, you know, in all kinds of sized organizations is um, in all of these studies, the, the second most important thing to teachers to ensure their success is nothing to do with their training or what graduate program they went to, but it's the role of their manager, which is in effect a principal, the role of the leader of the, the building or the, um, or, or whatever, however the uh, organization is structured, but generally a, a principal. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, our manager's view of us and the feedback we get from them and the view of our work and their engagement within it um, and our relationship with them is pretty proven as a, as a, as a key determinant for success. Why would that be any different um, for teachers? So um, I think there's some pretty, they're sort of systemic things that can be done. There are fantastic programs out there around coding, around maker spaces, um, around teachers being a learner with students. Um, there's, a, there's a school district I know where 
one of the ways they're dealing with sort of digital natives of the kids versus, you know, the teachers not really uh, being as au fait is they have the t- they have the students be the tech support. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah, exactly. So personally. Yes. So here's interesting, as I think back on my education, I remember when we were allowed to start using scientific calculators, except we couldn't take them into the exam room and everything else was still paper-based and, yeah, chalkboards, you know, the, the very traditional millennia of education has relied on chalkboards. So we're about to go to a break, but when we come back, Rose, please talk to us a little bit about how technology has transformed education. We're way past it just being scientific calculators. This really is the classroom, not just teacher's aid, but it is um, integral to the whole learning experience. So when we come back from break, do talk to us about how technology has made some of those changes and we'll start leapfrogging from there into the future implications for learning and education. Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, five years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact-based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future-proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you future-proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. This is Morak. Thank you for staying with us. You're on the Future Proof uh, Workplace Radio Show. And our guest this week is Rose Else Mitchell, Chief Learning Officer of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And we are exploring the impact of technology in the world of education. So, Rose, before we went for break, I was just starting to ask the question, could you summarize for us how has technology transformed education? What's different about learning in the 21st century than when I was in school, which I graduated in the late 80s? So, as I said, scientific calculators was about the limit of technology as I was exiting school. So, what's different now? So, uh, a couple of things. Um, I, I, I would say uh, one of the things that's changed, I think, for both students and teachers is um, the role of data and insight. Um, there's so much more data available. There's so many more technology solutions available. So, um, that means that teaching has this whole set of other skills um, and learning has this whole set of other skills that weren't really ever part of part of it before, which is being able to track your own progress, being able to compare that with others, being able to intervene, um, to accelerate and to, um, you know, people talk a lot about personalized learning um, in the space. It's become rather cliched at the moment, but um, that idea of being able to have just many more technical solutions or digital solutions, whether they're more gamified, um, you know, it's very good data around um, or research research data that shows that math games really help students in terms of how much practice they can get and also lowering their sort of affect um, if they have fear of math and, and building confidence. So there's um, places, you know, in pockets where those kinds of solutions and the data associated with them can really have the, the potential to impact um, impact learning. Uh, I think uh, another another one of the area where this is impacting is just the speed at which it's happening. Uh, I think we get we often have students who are out of sync um, with teachers because they go into a school building. They're you know all of the data shows that they're they're online something like um, between nine and twelve hours a day. Um, 
And that doesn't include being in school because when they get into school, they have to put their devices away. So without sort of careful attention to digital strategies and and, um, sort of transformational plans in school buildings around how to learn um, and what are the best kinds of uh, teaching and learning activities, you know, school can become sort of reified. So, you know, many people in the industry and outside the industry, especially those outside the industry, talk about education as the last um, the last uh, industry or, or sector to really be fully transformed. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this fundamental relationship between students and teachers and the school as locus parentis, particularly in the early grades, um, has so much importance socially and culturally. So, um, you know, I think we see that we see the best kind of transformations where the technology extends the arm of the teacher, where you can be working with this small group of students while those students are practicing over there. Um, mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, you can just imagine replacing the large 19th century kind of image of kids in rows and then they're suddenly just in rows on computers um, or they're isolated in a home on their computer in virtual school. And there's certainly a place for virtual schools. And that's an exciting um, area for the right kind of student with the right kind of adult supervision and support. Um, and we do see a growth in, in um, you know, fully virtual schools at, at the particularly at the high school level. I think mm-hmm. one other thing that's changed that's really, I think, a really exciting um, area is what's happening at high school. And I think high school really is in the net, next 10 years something that's up for grabs because some of the best school systems have really built strong relationships with community colleges, with um, more informal learning, kind of boot camp type um, uh, learning uh, environments, and then also even with, uh, you know, four-year colleges to have credits move back and forward um, and for students to really, you know, accelerate their own learning and be able to go at a different pace. I mean, the grade structure of school is artificial and I think as technology advances Mm -hmm. and the opportunity for choice and pace increases, um, we're going to see that grade structure start to, um, you know, disintegrate. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about that, Ashley, in our book, um, because the grade structure made sense when uh, education or the current version of education started, where you had people with very mixed backgrounds and a literate workforce and student base coming in, and it was done by uh, age and it was done by capability. But 18 years from start to finish in the current grade system, if you're graduating from university, and 18 months for Moore's Law to say computing power doubles, the math just doesn't add up. It doesn't, no. That is is nimble. But Linda, I know you were asking, you were just asking a question offline. What was your thought? Well, you know, actually what I'd love to do is segue because this is this is really interesting about the school systems. And and I agree with everything that's being said. And I love your concept, uh, Rose, of really, which, which we talk about a lot in our book is really any organization, any industry, any sector really has to scratch the surface, more than scratch the surface, but get into the why or the purpose of, of what is school all about and, and what is the purpose that you're trying to achieve through this institution organization. But I'd like to segue a little bit to, because organizations, companies today still are spending a ton of money on learning and development. And yep. you're a chief learning officer for a, a significant organization. And I'd really love to know your perspective on how you see this sort of nexus between what's going on in the schools what your role as a chief learning officer is in a business, in an industry, and what you think needs to change relative to 
how companies are developing and keeping talent fresh and staying on top of sort of this this technological onslaught. Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. Um, you know, I did mention earlier that, you know, while I'm a, a CLO and in some places that, you know, might be the head of our HR or the head of uh, learning and development, you know, mine is more outward facing. But uh, I am I am very intrigued with the exact question you asked because we're a company in transformation um, at Hunt Mifflin Harcourt working with school districts, many of whom want to be in transformation or need to be in transformation. So I have a funny joke if you read us a magazine got celebrities, you know, they're just like us. Um, I, I have a line I say to my teams and, and more broadly across the organization, which is customers, they're just like us. And uh, I think that I think that's very true. So when we talk about supporting teachers uh, and giving them the opportunity to say what they need to learn, I believe that's also very true about um, employees um, and even more so in a transformational context. Uh, I think, yeah, you know, there's certainly a lot of advantages to organizations that um, have you know freedom of uh, freedom of movement and flexible working policies and working at home and um, you know technology's definitely got better for doing that but um, I think there's also some of that isolation that you actually I was describing earlier about the teaching workforce when you have a lot of uh, a lot of your em- employees remote or in different we have six different offices and for a company our size that's that's a lot of movement mm-hmm. between places to really get people together in the same room to collaborate and to to make the kinds of step changes that we need to make when we're in transformation. So um, I I go back to a big philosophy I have, which is the answer to my rhetorical question, which is what is the point of school? Um, And that is that it is about learning how to learn. Um, And I know that's a theme in in the book as well. I think it's a theme for school. I think it's a theme for college. Um, And I think it's uh, absolutely what it means to be an employee, particularly, frankly, in a a, a legacy company that's more um, in transformation rather than, say, in a startup. But the startups are constantly having that experience too, where a pivot means you have to learn very quickly and then move. Um, here, I think you have to you have to unlearn, right? Um, and that's a that's actually often more challenging. And you see that in workforces where you've got um, a lot of longevity and then new blood coming in. And sometimes, not only is there cultural shifts there, um, but there can also be um, a, a different kind of approach to learning new things from new people that came in, or learning um, how to how to not do things in the way that you did them. And like any kind of uh, change, and I don't even mean sort of change management in a systemic structural way, but just think about your own life and what you want to change in your own life, whether it's doing more exercise or eating less chocolate. That's my one. Um, you know, you you need a bunch of things to be in place to make that change happen. Um, and so... Um, changing by, you know, unlearning and changing is is a real challenge for an organization. So um, I do think one of the things that organizations can do, and I think school districts can do this, and, and we see success where leadership bears down on this, which is really to have a strategy, um, you know, a strategy that you can rally around to, you can explain to employees, and then you can align their learning and development, their annual commitments to that. And it's really about, for employees, do you want to commit to being part of this change? And what are you going to learn as part of that? Um, I just had my my, uh, my 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 last one-on-one with my boss for the year. And um, I said, look, I don't think this is going to be part of my plan on my 360. We're just about to go through a whole set of measurements. But, you know, I think I'm going to try and do this online 
um, course at MIT on on AI. Linda, you said you've just been hearing everyone talk about about AI, and I've decided there's a great course on what business leaders need to know about AI. So, you know, I think doesn't matter how much else you've got going on as a leader, um, you also have to model that learning um, and learning how to learn and being okay to not know something, uh, which is what it looks like in a, a rapidly changing context like this. And that's hard for teachers and it's hard for anyone that's leading, leading learning and development or facilitating sessions or what have you in an organization too. You know, I, it, it is a very complicated and complex um uh, situation that we're dealing with when you think about it, because we've got kids coming into the workplace who are coming from a variety of different educational backgrounds, some more progressive than others, some more uh, focused on helping people learn how to learn, um, some out of the very traditional and the compliance models, coming into workplaces that have, in some cases now, five generations in the workplace, some who have people that have been there a very long time and also have been doing traditional kinds of uh, jobs that are shifting more rapidly than they're able to really understand or, or relate to. So how does a company, any organization, frankly, that's facing all of those challenges and nobody's escaping it, everybody's going to have to deal and everybody yep, is. I agree. Nobody is going to escape and nobody is going to escape technology. I don't care what sector you're in. How does somebody take some very concrete and practical steps to bridge some of these huge gaps? And I don't think we're going to have an easy answer to this, by the way. I'm not no. No, I mean, I, I do think, uh, and I hope this isn't a, a, a you know, a, a cop-out, but I, I do think it is about um, individuals taking taking responsibility for for their learning and seeking out with their manager. Um, and that's true whether you're a teacher or in, in one of these, you know, heavily impacted organizations. Um, working out where um, your skills are today and where they can be optimized for the future. I mean, I think there's a great example of this in, um, you know, the this sort of burgeoning. And I, th- I saw something recently that showed it was the third most um, – I think it was the LinkedIn study for 17, uh, that it was the third most uh, uh, um, advertised and filled career this this year, which is customer success. Now, customer success is an interesting category because it's got pieces of marketing, it's got pieces of sort of services, customer service, professional services. There's almost even some product in there. Um, there's there's a lot of places that you could have come from to be in this role of, of a customer success officer or customer success representative. Um, and maybe in some places it's just a renaming of uh, of the of a you know a person on the phone. But I think anyone that's really in transformation, it's 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 a it's a real change. So starting to look at what are the kinds of jobs that are coming up, and and how are your skills uh, you know positioned with that, and talking to your manager about that. And if your manager isn't okay with some of these changes, you know, finding a mentor who who. Who is? Because I think, especially for young people, it's not just those elementary students you you talked about earlier that um, are, are going to be going into jobs that don't exist yet. I mean, I think that's true for twenty somethings too. That the jobs that they can do in twenty years are going to be very different. So um, that's why I come back to this learning how to learn is you finding that 
that new thing you want to get good at and just doing it. Um, you know, not waiting to be told, not waiting for applying for a job. Um, you know, I'm not expecting to become an AI specialist in a six-week course and nor am I doing it so that I can get a job leading some kind of AI business. Uh, but I think it's a good piece of learning for me to, to, to be better positioned for the future. Now, maybe it's too abstract for some people, but, you know, places like General Assembly and um, a lot of the great courses on Coursera um, and doing those with someone, you know, getting on, getting online together and, 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 um, and learning together. But I do think there should be a, a focus on um, solving a problem together, whether that's, you know, through, through one of these applied courses or putting your hand up for a new project in, in the workplace that feels like it's, you know, the new thing, even if it's scary, because you got to, you got to kind of try it and dip your toe in and then, uh, and, and, and failing is what happens sometimes when things are new. So that's always harder. Uh, you know, I watch my seven year old and she's happy to fail and start again. Um, and I think we get less good at that as we get older. Yeah, I was just going to say that we're at break, uh, Rose, so we're going to take a quick break. But, you know, you're, you're so right in your observation. We all start out learning from our failures and then we get it beat out of us that, you know, uh, we don't want to make mistakes and all of that. So it's g- g- figuring out how to unlearn what we were, uh, what we've been, what's been driven into us as we became adults. But we're at break. We're talking to uh, Rose uh, from Houghton, Mifflin and uh, Harcourt. And we will be back continuing our conversation around how learning has to change in order to enable not only schools, learners, students, but businesses to transform. We all know that leaders who build talent, care about their people and create healthy organizations are the people that others want to work for and with. Raise your own bar and future-proof your organization with the Future Proof Workplace. Whether you're a CEO, manager, or just trying to survive the chaos, the Future Proof Workplace is your wake-up call. Because, let's face it, the future is now. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you start future-proofing your organization. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. This is Morag and Linda and I are having a fascinating conversation with Rose L. Mitchell, Chief Learning Officer of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, about the 21st century uh, focus and needs in terms of education. So, Rose, I've, I've listened to you speak before and I've heard you talk about something around lion, lion, ugh, can't speak, learning science. So, talk to us more about learning science. What does it mean and how is HMH applying it? Uh, so, learning science is really the nexus of a, a lot of different disciplines. Um, some places they're even calling it learning engineering. But, uh, you know, it's based on sort of cognitive science, um, but also traditional educational research, which measures the efficacy of, of uh, you know, whether a particular intervention or product or program or, um, you know, materials have or, or services have worked. Um, but also it's starting more and more to include things like ethnography um, and really looking at 
sort of time and motion and the affect around what um, students and teachers are doing, as well as the all-important um, data analytics insights and how we can, or, or what is sometimes called learning analytics, uh, and what that tells us about how learning is happening, um, and what it tells us also about our content. Um, so it's you know it's uh, it's 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 more nascent um, in the space. Cognitive science obviously has been pretty fundamental to educational materials and making sure that we're using things like deliberate practice, um, really structured collaboration. I talked about project-based learning earlier and, you know, a lot of people uh, will implement project-based learning and what that means is they put some kids in a group and give them a project and mm -hmm. that's not project-based learning. That <laughs> sounds like it's going to be great, but it's not. You know, it, we've all had that experience in group work where, you know, yep. these people do it and those people don't. So, and especially if you, you know, you're, you're 11 years old and you're a group of five kids, um, you're supposed to be, you know, solving a, um, you know, a problem in, on the, uh, the water table in your, in your town or city or something, um, you know, you need some really concrete uh, structure to that kind of thing. So, you know, looking at, um, looking at, uh, you know, those kinds of cognitive science-based uh, um, learning designs is a key part of what learning science is. So that's built into our programs. Also looking at um, the kind of data that comes out of our products. So uh, we have, a, we have a, a, a learning platform that we call ED, Your Friend in Learning. And mm -hmm. all of our programs, it's just been released in the, in the last 12 months, all of our programs um, will be going onto that platform. And it's a highly instrumented platform that not only helps us look at, you know, how kids are doing an assessment and at certain points, but also more and more, we'll start to see assessment and learning start to blur into one another. So, um, you know, I don't like to say, well, kids won't even know they're being assessed. But the idea is, you know, that you can be finding out how they're learning in real time, much more formatively based assessment. There are 180 school days in the year. And at the moment, the average school district uses about 50 of them to do some kind of version of assessment. So that's wow. a huge amount of lost instructional time um, that we could be using in terms of being able to bring insight to the student themselves and to the teacher um, and obviously to administrators who, uh, you know, care about what the trajectory of each individual student, but also what schools and, and subgroups and demographics look like. So it's a really exciting area. Um, but there's also learning science around um, things I mentioned earlier around social emotional learning and executive function and, and some of these other things that I think are, uh, are much more nuanced than just something you can get uh, data on around the academics. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a very exciting area that we're, I'm just, just actually uh, have an offer in today um, to hire a chief learning scientist and um, uh, comes with a, a great deal of experience in this area and, and really looking at fast cycle understandings of uh, how content and learning is happening and then adjusting product uh, and uh, service in real time to, to improve the experience. You know, data, big data was the big buzzword about uh, six months ago, and, and it still is, and it's going to play a huge role. You know, artificial intelligence clearly is going to, is, is now the driver, and that's how quickly things have changed. But how do you see, I, I know you talked about assessment, but how do you see data really playing a role in, in, in the educational environment? 
So I think, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've, sto- I've tried to stop using the word data because it's just basically the way I just sort of think about it is data is raw stuff um, yeah. and it needs to be turned into information, insight, and then action. So um, I, I think that that pathway is not sort of in place in education terribly well, to be honest, and certainly not in a fast way um, or in an immediate way where the data is there and then you've got an action right away. And I think as a teacher, that's a hugely valuable thing. So that is a that is a path that we are trying to shorten um, and, a, and a bridge that we're, we're building. Um, I think it's one of the most valuable things that we can do for teachers and can and can really change what they're what they're doing. I think there's some interesting applications of of data, and the most obvious one, which is again, of course, rooted in um, great adult learning theory, um, you know, we see it in 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 uh, biotech as well, which is the role of feedback. So that idea that you don't, and this is, I mean, this goes back to the 50s in cognitive science, but that you don't keep doing something. Um, in the wrong way or the off, you know, the off message way or that whatever it is, you know, before getting some feedback. And so, you know, the, the whole, the whole work around nudges, um, which comes out of, um, you know, behavioral economics and that kind of thing. There's a real role there in helping give feedback sooner and closing that loop. Um, and especially for learners. So before I talked about data extending the reach of the teacher, but I think for learners themselves, Themselves, understanding, um, oh, I did that. Maybe I should try this. And sometimes making sure that um, you're you're scrambling some of what's going on for students so that they actually have to stop doing what they're doing automatically to think. Because learning is happening when we cogitate, when the glucose surges in our brain. Um, and that's why failure is such a thing. When, you know, you you have this emotional and uh, and true glucose surge when something goes wrong. And then that, if you can turn it, from reflection into something is how, you know, you can get that learning from failure. So if if we have too much automation in any of the digital tools we have, even feedback wise, then kids will just start getting used to that. So it's constantly about bringing this systematic variation. Um, but I think feedback's really where data and insight can be highly valuable, um, both going to the learner themselves and the teacher as learner, but also going to the teacher to extend her insights and her uh, path to action. Yeah. So can I ask a, da- a double-barreled question? I'm just going to be greedy here. And um, we've talked about the impact of technology. So what limits are there on the impact of technology? But also linked to that then, what are the challenges? Because when we talk about technology, it ain't cheap always. And we're you're trying to influence in the education districts where funding is tight. Mm-hmm. So what are the limits? Where are we going, either not going far enough or too far? And then what are the challenges you're experiencing in bringing technology to the classroom? Yeah, great, super great questions. So there's two limits, I'd say. There's funding. Um, and this time. Uh, and I think, you know, putting something in place uh, and, and particularly something new as it is in any place, whether that's an ERP or a new strategy or, a, um, you know, a new learning development platform, um, that experience of what it means to sort of implement, have early adopters, um, you know, bring along the, the middle third and then, you know, finally the stragglers, you know, that plays out very much in school districts as well. And of course, particularly around the gatekeepers, which tend to be, you know, the principals and then the teachers themselves. So I would say a, a significant challenge is um, what does implementation look like and how um, 
how organized can school districts get around putting in place uh, technology that is aligned to a teaching and learning strategy? So one of the things, frankly, we see a lot of is uh, we have some funding. You know, a lot of the funding in education is federal and it's on a yearly cycle. And so, you know, they might suddenly get a um, some title funding or some 21st century grant. And so they're suddenly like, okay, now's a really good time. We should buy some iPads or let's get some on Chromebooks or the Lenovo salesperson turns up and they're like, oh, we should do that. So they, you know, they do this thing and it's not, they haven't necessarily thought through, and this happens in companies too, you know, they haven't thought through how is that going to connect to what else we're doing. And oh, great, we have a we have a one-to-one device initiative. What, do, what are we going to do with those devices? Who are they really going to be for? Are Chromebooks best for all kids? Or maybe the younger kids need iPads because touch technology is really good for their kinesthetic learning and neural imprinting. So um, aligning technology to um, the teaching and learning strategy is another challenge we see with implementation. So... Um, I think you can, if you're doing that as a school district, then you tend to then align your funding better, right? Basic strategic thinking that that your your funding sort of against that plan, mm-hmm. and you're using it in a in a savvy way. Um, there is a, th- I mean, I'm, I live in New York City, and I, you know, I'm in New York City schools quite often. My daughter is in school in one. I mean, there are a lot of old buildings, and particularly in you know some of our older cities. Uh, I mean, there are real challenges around really basic things, and I'm not going to say bandwidth. Bandwidth is we've still got dead zones um, and there's still equity issues and they really are still out there where kids don't have access to the internet at home. Um, But mainly schools have okay bandwidth, but they don't have things like, uh, you know, drops for Mm -hmm. computers. They don't have enough actual, the the, the walls are too thick for Wi-Fi access points. So there Mm -hmm. becomes a lot of sort of just practical things that in many places and in companies would be easier to get over than they are in, in schools where there's just you know, slightly more regulatory and um, and bureaucratic hurdles to 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 kind of steamroll change. So there's some of the things that we see that I frankly, I mean, not to disabuse anybody that there aren't going to be constraints on funding, um, but I don't see that as the main issue. I see it as much more around strategic alignment and thinking about any technology, whether it's the device or the software or the data system as aligned to a, um, a, a student outcome strategy, right? That's, what's, that's the business of school. It's helping students learn. Wow. That's a great, I love that answer. So Rose, we're coming to the end of the show and, you know, we'd love to hear what, what three things that you would like our listeners to leave with. What are the three messages that you think are really essential out of this conversation? Um, so uh, I, I guess I'd, I'd like to return to uh you know, given who I think your learners are, I, I really want to return to the importance of learning how to learn and to be brave and go after that one thing that you've uh, you've wanted to try. Um, I think it I think it can be exhilarating, uh, and it can set you up for a, a path that you didn't know that you could do. And it can be small or big, but uh, if you can think about it as less about the thing, right? I mean, I'm excited about my AI, but it's more about the experience of applying myself to new learning and uh, and having that. So um, that would be one. Um, I think obviously out there, I'm sure there are many uh, 
uh, many parents and they're probably thinking about their kids and their kids' schools and how are kids using, um, you know, devices or technology in the schools. I, I mean, I just want to emphasize the importance of, again, where I began, which is that the role of school and learning is a combination of, um, of you know, a really good teacher um, and some great tools. And some of those are going to be digital and they're going to become more and more sophisticated. But uh, preparing your kids for, for that is about preparing them to be great citizens, not preparing them to train robots necessarily. Um, and and that's about how they work together. Um, my daughter's school has a kindness challenge um, every week. And I think um, learning to be a great human and a collaborator and a critical thinker, um, they're about some of the most important things. So whether you're a teacher or a, um, a manager of others or a, or a parent, I think that's a, a really important um thing to to remember no matter how much rhetoric is around us about uh uh how transforming technology is today that as long as we're human i think that 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 is um uh, that's a that's a key a key one um and then um and then the third is uh let's let's constantly uh, to my to my last point about what school districts do let's constantly question why and what the purpose is of uh, of of technology um in the work that we do uh it's i'm i'm a huge early adopter i get everything there is um i love it but constantly thinking about why am i using this what is its purpose and how is it amplifying whatever i initially wanted awesome. to do whatever it is that you do yeah rose this has been a Wonderful conversation. I can't tell you how much both Morag and I appreciate it. It's been very insightful. We must have you on again because I know we've got a list of many more questions that we'd love to go through with you. We've been talking to Rose Elise Mitchell, who's the Chief Learning Officer of Houghton, Mifflin, and Harcourt um, Worldwide Organization. And it's just been a great conversation. You can look Rose up, I'm sure, uh, on the internet if you. Uh, you know, are anxious to get a hold of her. And I would certainly suggest that. Thanks, Rose. It was Thank really you. Great. Thanks for having you. This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.